Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Tuesday, November 30th, 2021. On today's episode, we're going to have a mini water cooler discussion and talk about what we've been up to. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm a senior writer at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's episode by Slash Film senior writer and chief film critic, Chris Evangelista. Hello. Chris, how's it going? How was your Thanksgiving? Uh, it was fine. How was yours, Ben? How was, it was yours? It, it was good. Uh, we, My wife and I um, had two Thanksgivings. We moved back to Florida last year and both of our sets of parents live pretty close to each other. So we did one like lunch with, with my family and then dinner with her family. So it was nice. We had, we didn't really have to do too much uh, cooking on our end, which is something that we've done, you know, all the years that we were living in LA and all that. So we got to just, uh, you know, roll in and, you know, we brought mac and cheese over. Um, but yeah, for the most part, we got to just eat everybody else's food. So it was really nice. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds good. Yeah. Uh, all right, so let's get into today's water cooler episode. There's only one thing that I wanted to mention in the what we've been doing section because I don't know about you, Chris, but I've been watching a ton of stuff like, you know, as we approach the end of the year and screener season and all that kind of stuff. Um, I know that you and I are both in critics groups and there's probably going to be awards ceremonies and the voting that needs to happen and all that kind of stuff in the coming days and weeks. So uh, the, the movie watching on my end is really ramping up, but in between watching movies, I spent basically the past month interviewing a bunch of sound editors and mixers and sound designers, some of whom have won, many of whom actually have, have won Oscars, uh, for this big article that I wrote at slashfilm.com about dialogue intelligibility in movies and how it's become more difficult to understand dialogue in films and why that is in this article basically points to a bunch of different reasons and and uh, pinpoints a lot of things that I had been wondering about as a viewer but uh, hadn't really been able to put into words or or really um, nail down why over the past 10 years or so it seems like I basically have to watch things at home with subtitles or else I miss a couple lines here and there so I was curious about why that was, and I reached out to a bunch of people who do this for a living and know what they're talking about. And uh, uh, I think the the end result turned out really well. It's um, it's something that seems to be striking a, a nerve with people. Um, I'm guessing a lot of people have have experienced the same kind of thing. So I'll, I'll put a link to that in the show notes, and um, hopefully 
you guys listening will get a chance to read that because it's, it's, I found it to be like a really uh, illuminating conversation with a bunch of people. So hopefully that article does, uh, you know, is able to shed some light on that issue as well. So, um, all right, let's get into what we've been, what we have been watching. Chris, what have you been watching recently? Uh, I've been watching a lot of stuff, but I will talk about, um, three, no, what do I have here? One, two, three, four things. And two of them overlap with what you're going to talk about. But, um, first and foremost, I watched, uh, the Beatles get back, which is of course the new, uh, like it's like an eight hour docu-series on Disney plus, uh, from Peter Jackson. Um, you know, the Beatles, when they were working on what would become, uh, let it be, which is the, you know, their final album. They also made it, we're making a documentary and the documentary is also called let it be. And what Peter Jackson did was he took like hours and hours and hours of footage that was shot and never really used for the documentary and compiled it all together to create this really exhaustive portrait of the Beatles, um, you know, just working on this album and, uh, it of course culminates with their, you know, their big rooftop concert, which was the last time they ever performed together in public. And uh, man, this was great. You know, I'm not a big Beatles fan. I'm not like, you know, I'm not like one of those nerds who's like the Beatles. They suck because that's like a silly thing to say. But I, I'm, <laughs> I, you know, I, I'm never like I was never that that huge into into the Beatles. But watching this, it was just like. Uh, I mean, for one thing, it made me want to listen to a bunch of Beatles songs. But for another thing, it was just just fascinating to watch because, uh, you know, there are some complaints that it's too slow. And, you know, there's not really, you know, it's not your typical documentary like you see now where it keeps cutting to people in the present, you know, talking head interviews where they're like, ah, then the Beatles went into the studio. You know, it's just the footage that was shot back then. And it's just all pieced together. But it's just fascinating to watch these guys get together and and just you know jam in in their studio and you sense all the tension between them because this was really like you know at the end of of what the Beatles were and you can just feel the tension building up among them and how you know and it's also just surreal to think about that like when this was happening when you know their the Beatles were quote unquote over they were all still like in their twenties they're all just like a bunch <laughs> of young guys. And like, all right, our careers have peaked already. And it's just like, just bizarre to watch these, these like guys just, you know, slowly come undone after being the biggest uh, band in, in, in the world. But I really enjoyed it. I thought it was, was great. And, uh, and I gotta admit, like when it was over, I felt like, like, oh, I'm going to miss hanging out with the Beatles. Cause like my wife and I, we watched it over three nights, three nights in a row. And, and it really just felt like just hanging out with the Beatles and you know, every, every segment is, is like three hours long or so it's not like, it's not like, you know, like one hour in the here and one hour. Mm-hmm. There. So you just really get engrossed in it and you just get like, hooked on just watching these guys work and watching them joke around and watching them smoke like a million cigarettes. Like <laughs> when, it, when it was over, I was like, God damn, I need a cigarette. Just, <laughs> just watching these guys, just like they're constantly smoking cigarettes. But yeah, so I, I, I really recommend get back. Even if you're not a big Beatles fan, cause it's just, just really cool to watch. Yeah. I'm, I am not a huge Beatles fan. I certainly don't um, hate them. I I have talked about this before. I like respect, you know, what they did for the industry, but I I never grew up listening to their music. So I just don't have much of a connection to it. And I've never actually like sat down and listened to their entire discography or anything. So it's interesting that you say that it works for people who aren't even diehard fans. Cause I, 
I mean, my assumption would be an eight hour documentary about the Beatles seems like something that only diehard Beatles fans would care about. But it sounds like that's not the case. So I'm, I'm kind of uh, shocked by that, frankly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, you know, my wife is even less of a Beatles fan than I am in the sense that I don't think she really even knew anything about the Beatles. Like when I was like, we should watch this. You know, it's about them making uh, Let It Be. She was like, why is that important? And I was, I was like, well, that's their, you know, their final album. And she had no idea about the stuff. But even she was like, this was, this was great. She loved watching it. So, yeah, I, wow. I really do think you'll, you'll enjoy it, Ben. Yeah, I'm on her level. I didn't know that Let It Be was their last album. Like, that's how little I know about the Beatles. So, um, yeah, maybe I'll maybe I'll tune in and check this out. I, I saw that one clip that was going around on Twitter of, uh, of I think it was Paul, who, like, came up with Get Back, the that song sort of, uh, I guess that, that clip has been the whole, isolated the whole, and going yeah. around. The whole movie has moments like that where it's just fucking nuts. We're like, like they'll show up and they're clearly all like hung over and rumpled and it's like 8am and they're like, all right, lads, let's get to work. And they just like, <laughs> they just start like, like the other guys will be in the background doing, you know, just bullshitting and Paul McCartney will like pick up a, a guitar and, and first he'll just be like noodling around and it'll sound like nothing. And then in a few seconds, it's like, Oh, that's, that's get back. He just pulled that out of his ass somehow. And it's just <laughs> like, it really does underscore like how friggin' talented these guys really were. And so, yeah, it, I, I, I can't recommend it enough. Awesome. So that's the Beatles get back. It is streaming on Disney plus right now. Uh, Chris, I'm super jealous of the next thing that you're going to talk about. Cause you got a chance to see West side story, the new Steven Spielberg movie. Yes, I saw it last night. Um, technically, the review is still embargoed, but the the social reaction is avail- is allowed. So let's call that this, um, uh, or let's call this that rather. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so West Side Story is, of course, uh, the new Steven Spielberg movie, and it's uh, both a remake of you know the the original film and and the Broadway production that inspired it. Uh, and of course, Stephen Sondheim, who just passed away, uh, wrote the the lyrics, um, and. God damn, this was good. I, I went into this with pretty, pretty high expectations because I'm, I'm a big Spielberg fan as people who listen to this show hopefully know by now. And um, 21st so, Century Spielberg, check it out. It's Chris's podcast. If you're just <laughs> listening to this for the first time, Chris yes. has done an entire podcast about Steven Spielberg's work. So yeah, check it yeah. out. So like, you know, it was like, oh, a new Spielberg movie. Uh, I went into it cautiously optimistic. Not that I doubt Steven Spielberg, but I was, you know, you never know what you're going to get. And even Steven Spielberg is is capable of delivering duds. You know his his movie, his last movie before this was uh, Ready Player One, which is I honestly think is probably the worst movie he's ever made. Uh, so I, I was slightly like, oh, I hope this you know this is an improvement, and this is great. And this isn't like just a great movie. This is like a top tier Spielberg movie, like one of his best movies. It's just so goddamn good he's been he's been talking about making a musical pretty much for his entire career and he's he's sprinkled musical elements throughout his films um uh, 1941 has a like a big musical number involving um like zoot suitors and stuff like that and um <laughs> and of course uh indiana jones the temple of doom opens with a big musical number and so he's been like toying with this for years and he's just been talking about like i want to make a musical but he never has and he finally got around to it and watching it, you're like, God, I wish he's been making musicals for years now because uh, he, you know, he clearly is someone who understands the classical musical style. Um, I like a lot of modern musicals, but a lot of modern musical, I'm talking about movies here, not like stage ones, but a lot of modern musicals, they're shot in this really shitty way where the, 
the director doesn't understand that musicals need to have movement and we should be able to see that movement like in the heights is, is a good recent example i thought that was pretty good but i also felt like so much of that movie was shot in like medium close-ups of just like you know people's torsos and it was just like frustrating to me and i also didn't like that like that movie needed to have like a uh a framing device to explain the musicals and that framing device is the one guy telling his kids about what happened and it's like i hate this this mo- like we've we've gotten to this modern era where when people make musicals now they're worried about uh audiences not understanding what musicals are so they have to invent reasons why everyone is singing mm-hmm. even if it's like a casual reason like that like oh this is the framing device or it's all in their head you know and you don't need that and this is like old school classical musical stuff uh and the way spielberg shoots it all is just friggin' phenomenal where he's just constantly uh playing up the movement and playing up wide shots where people are just dancing around and the colors are just oh so good so many movies now look are, are so like drab and they all have that modern day bluish orange tint and i don't Mm -hmm. understand why everyone uses that now and this is like just bursting with color from the costume designs and the and the scenery and stuff like that and so yeah this this really uh really impressed me and i know people are going to crucify me for this but i genuinely think i like this more than the original i'm not saying the original west side story is bad i recognize it is a great movie uh but and it might be just because i literally watched it the night before I saw the, so uh, my wife and I watched the original right the night before we went and saw. The, oh, wow. You know, okay. I, I didn't realize you watched them that close together. Yeah. And it's, you know, again, original great movie, but it, it has, so, it has some problems. Um, And I'm not even talking about like the very noticeable problems where, you know, half of the cast is, is wearing brown face to play mm-hmm. Puerto Rican characters and stuff like that. I'm talking about like, the, I, I don't even know the guy's name, but the actor who plays Tony, I found him, really bad in the original where he's just like constantly just like grinning and he's supposed to be like this street kid but he's just like oh gee i'm a, i was just like i don't like this actor and i don't want to get into uh, ansel elgort however you want to say his name uh i know uh he's not the most beloved figure and i know there are uh, allegations against him and stuff like that but his the way he plays it or it's, it's really more the way the character is written here it seems more like a actual character instead of just like this this gritting goon and and uh you know tony kushner's screenplay really uh, fleshes a lot of things out like it actually develops the relationship between tony and maria whereas in the original it's just like they're instantly in love and i get that that's pulled directly from romeo and juliet where it's the same thing where like they they meet and they're instantly in love but Mm -hmm. it just it just felt weird in the in the original west side story and the way it's handled here feels a lot more uh i guess believable i want to say uh so man i'm i'm so excited about this chris i have like so many questions about this for you but or, or about yeah about this movie for you but i think uh you know the idea of like the reviews embargo still yeah. being in place maybe we'll just like table this conversation for later but i'm really glad that you liked it um because i mean i was right there with you like i never underestimate spielberg but like Obviously, there's a there's a huge shadow that he was stepping into with, with making yeah. this movie, and it sounds like he he knocked it out of the park, which is just really awesome to hear. So, yeah, it just it just um, again the original great movie, but there's just something really special about this, and I was hoping to like it. I was not expecting to like it as much as I did. Like this is going to end up being 
in like my top five movies of the year for sure. It, wow. It was, it was that good. Great stuff. Okay. So that comes out in theaters, ex- exclusively in theaters on December 10th, I believe it is, um, yes. which is like just, you know, a couple weeks away basically. So, uh, Get that on your radar, folks. All right, uh, Chris, what else have you been watching? Uh, I finally got to see The French Dispatch, and I believe you did too. Yes. Um, yeah, I, I wasn't able to catch this in theaters, but I got a uh, screener for it for you know, end-of-the-year purposes. And I loved this. I thought this was charming as hell. I know people have issues where Wes Anderson, you know, he's so married to his style. And at this point, I feel like we should really... And when I say we, I'm not talking about me because I'm not, I'm not a goon. But there are people out there who are just like, Wes Anderson's doing his style again. It's like, yes, that is what he's done it for a bunch of movies now. You Like, can we stop complaining about this? Like, this, that's literally his style. He's not going to... He's not going to, like, wake up one day and be like, I'm going to make a completely different... Like, that's mm-hmm. what he wants to do. We should really just either accept it or just... If you don't like it, just stop seeing his movies because he's never going to change but i like his movies uh i thought um uh grand Budapest hotel was like one of his the best movie he's ever made i yeah thought, i think so too i thought isle of dogs was okay it had some issues but this was just delightful it's just a very wonderful movie about uh writing and about storytelling and about working in a magazine and um uh, you know, it's again, if you've seen one Wes Anderson movie, you, you pretty much know what you're going to get here. You know, that sort of melancholy whimsy and uh, a huge cast and so on. But I really enjoyed this. I thought this was pretty wonderful. Well, Chris, I wish that I liked it as much as you did. Oh, I think no. this is like lower tier Wes Anderson for me um, because, you know, I, I was trying to figure out why. And I think my wife and I watched this last night and we were talking about it afterwards. And I think she crystallized the idea better than I could have, which is like, the uh, the thing about a Wes Anderson movie for me is like when it starts and in his previous movies, they would normally start. There's normally some sort of voiceover or something. And he's like introducing you into this like dollhouse world that he creates. And, you know, there are all these quirky characters and everything. And I, I typically like his stuff and I like um, being lured into those worlds. Um, and there's there, like there's a lot of uh, voiceover narration and setting the stage in a Wes Anderson movie is something that comes fast and furious at you in the very beginning of the movie. And a lot of times I find myself, um, you know, struggling to keep up with a little bit of it. But by the time, uh, you know, the movie progresses a little bit and you get more comfortable with the characters, you sort of me anyway, I, as a viewer, settle into a groove and like let the movie wash over me and like I'm fully become fully immersed in the world that he's trying to present in the French dispatch. The problem I think, or, or we think my wife thinks uh, we both think is that um, this movie is like an anthology kind of film where there's like a bunch of different stories being told. So yeah. what that really means is you're watching a ton of Wes Anderson stuff all crammed together. And so there's a lot of narration and by the, just, you know, by the time you, sort of are able to catch up and understand what's going on and, and really settle into a groove, that story is over and then another one begins and you, you find yourself um, like immediately struggling to understand the, the new context and the new background. And there's like just a whole ton of, I don't know if this happens to you, Chris, but like when you watch a movie sometimes and like the very, the opening scene happens um, and there's like a title card, or not a title card, but a, uh, a narration card where it like lays out the history yeah. of what's going on. 
sometimes for me, even though I'm like sitting there ready to absorb that information, as soon as that card fades out, I immediately forgot what was on the card, like the the main details of it. And I feel like for Wes Anderson's, uh, you know, such like highly stylized manner of storytelling, the, um, the vocabulary and the, you know, there's like foreign languages being spoken that I don't uh, speak fluently. And there, there's just a lot of uh, terminology and like, um, I don't know, there's a lot of like accoutrement to like the whole Wes Anderson experience that is encapsulated in these like uh, voiceovers that set up each of these stories. And I just found it a little difficult to grasp onto um, and, and hang on to long enough any of that stuff to really be able to connect to the movie in a major way. I liked parts of it quite a bit. Like there's the, there's one um, story where Benicio del Toro plays this uh, prisoner who is like a a famous artist. And Adrian Brody plays this guy who runs like a, an art gallery and is, uh, is trying to capitalize on del Toro's uh, success. And I, I loved that whole story, but then it's over and you move on to the next thing. And, and, um, you know, some of them, uh, like in any anthology story, I liked more than others. I also really love the, um, the wraparound, the, the sort of framing device of like Bill Murray is the editor of this magazine who interacts with his writers and, uh, that whole dynamic, which is like f- just barely sprinkled throughout the movie. I really wish we got more of that. Cause I loved every second that that was happening. Like just his, the relationship that he had with those, uh, with his employees and, and all of that. I I loved that stuff. Um, but there's just like so much happening in this movie that I found it, uh, tough to grasp on first viewing. This may be something where, um, you know, on subsequent viewings, everything sort of falls into place a little bit easier. Also, uh, did you have, do you have any theories about like why the film changes, uh, from black and white to color at the moments that it does? Cause I don't know if it was just me or what, but I, I could not quite, put my finger on why that yeah, visual change happened. I'm not entirely sure for that. You know, obviously I understand the, you know, the, the um, aspect ratio changes and stuff. And that's something he did in, in grand Budapest too, which I, I really like, but yeah, there are, there were a few uh, moments where they, they dip into black and white in the middle of a color thing. And I was not entirely sure why he was doing it. If, you know, probably just, you know, cause it looks good. Yeah. Know. Yeah. It could you be know, as I, simple as that. I do think, um, I do think your, 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 uh, your arguments, criticisms are fair and I, I don't even disagree with them necessarily, but, um, I don't know, I guess it just worked for me a little bit better, but I, I do agree that I really do wish we had gotten more of, you know, the behind the scenes stuff at the actual magazine. And yeah, you know, it was so but, much uh, fun. Yeah. Good stuff. Okay, so then uh, you and I also watched a movie called Procession that is on Netflix right now. French Dispatch, by the way, I think is coming to uh, like digital sometime in December um, if it's not already out. And yeah. I think it's in theaters still in some theaters maybe, but um, but yeah, it's it's coming out on like Blu-ray and digital and stuff uh, like mid or late December. So keep an eye out for that if you want to check that one out. Uh, Procession is on Netflix right now. What did you think about Procession, Chris? Wow, this this really. Uh really impressed me um procession is a uh it's a documentary from robert green and um robert green is is a very interesting documentary filmmaker because he doesn't make you know your traditional talking head documentaries he made this really fascinating documentary called kate plays christine um about uh 
Christine Shelbuck, who um, she, who was a, a local news reporter who shot herself on air. And the movie is about uh, an actress learning to play the part, but it's for like a fictional movie, basically. But it's it's a documentary that's sort of fictional at the same time. And it's just like this fascinating approach to that material. So he, he's, he's basically doesn't do things by the numbers. And this is mm-hmm. like that too, where um, this is about a, a group of um, they're adults now, but when they were children, they were uh, sexually abused by priests in the Catholic church and um, using um, drama therapy, which is, I have to admit is something I never knew actually existed. I had heard of art therapy before, but never drama therapy where and drama therapy is, is what it sounds like basically where you're, you're, getting therapy through acting and, and drama and stuff like that. Um, and through drama therapy, these, these men write and act in and, and sort of direct little short movies about their experiences, or it's not like direct recreations of what happened to them as kids. It's more about how they felt in those situations. And uh, as you can probably guess from that subject matter, it is, it's not an easy watch and, I don't want to, I guess I shouldn't say that because there's a spoiler, but there's this one line, uh, like there's this one boy they cast to play, you know, like the, the stand in altar boy for, for the sex abuse victims. And, um, he, at the very end of the movie, this, this kid goes up to one of the people he was portraying and he, he basically gives him this very brief sort of line about what he was trying to do, uh, to play this character. And I'm being very vague here cause I don't want to ruin it, but mm-hmm. It, it, it like that, that one moment, like fucking like devastated me. Mm. I was just like, it, like um, it broke me like completely. I was just like, oh my God. So again, this is not an easy watch, but I, I, I thought this was excellent. Yeah, man. I definitely heavy. Um, I, I watched it very early in the morning and I maybe wouldn't recommend that. Like you probably want to like give yourself a minute before you just like roll out of bed and watch procession. But, um, yeah, it is, I, I was very, uh, moved by this, especially the very end of the movie. I just found, um, I mean, it's obviously really, really tough subject matter that has been well covered elsewhere. But like you were saying, Chris, this filmmaker, I think finds a really interesting way into, this story that, that, um, you know, it humanizes these guys in a way that, uh, you know, th- there's all these interviews with them in the very beginning of the film where they talk about like, look, the last thing that we want here is to be seen as, um, you know, people who are victims or people who are like exploiting the fact that this happened to us. And really, I think the movie does a great job in like, um, giving them showing how they take the power back in their situation. You know, that I think a large part of the film is devoted to each of these men. I think there's like six of them or something like that, five or six of them um, returning to the spots, like the actual buildings or the locations where they were molested or abused uh, early, way earlier in their lives. And, you know, you get the sense rightly so that they were like terrified to return to those places. But the, the fact that they go back now as, you know, 50 or 60 year old guys with these other people there as a, as a support system, um, you know, who have their back and who are experiencing the same kind of, um, you know, reliving this horrific thing uh, right there along with them. It's just a testament to like the power of community and the power of like uh, what small groups can do and how we can, you know, like what the best of us looks like when we like, you know, reach out a hand and, and help up our fellow person, you know, it just is a movie that, um, 
that made me feel good about humanity while also uh, feeling terrible about what humanity is, is capable of, if that makes sense. Um, and then, yeah, just like the, the act of seeing these guys return to these locations and like confront this, this horrible thing that happened in their lives and like uh, regaining power over it. It's just, it's such a, uh, a moving sort of like profound uh, movie experience. So um, yeah, I would, I would recommend this because I think it's very, very good. But yeah, it's going to be a tough watch for some people. So um, that is Procession. It is streaming on Netflix right now. Yeah, don't uh, I? I don't want to trash Netflix because Netflix does a lot of good stuff. They they paid for this, but I hate that this is on Netflix because I feel like this is going to get completely overlooked there. Because most people, when they go on Netflix, they want to you know they're going to watch what's that called selling sunset or whatever the fuck it's called. They're not looking for this. And I have a bad feeling like this is going to get completely overlooked. So I really hope people, you know, especially cause I don't think the Netflix algorithm is like splashing this all over. Like come watch our pre sex abuse movie. So yeah, it, you know, yeah. it's not like the most <laughs> happy uh, subject matter, but I really hope it finds an audience on Netflix cause it really deserves one. I mean, Chris, I pay attention to this stuff for a living, uh, and I had never heard of this until I saw in our Slack channel, we have a, a channel dedicated to the best movies of 2021 for this uh, ongoing article that we have at Slash Film, um, where we're, we're constantly updating this uh, this piece. And I saw that you, I guess, nominated Procession to be you know one of the things that we write about soon. And that was the first time I'd ever heard of it. So just seeing that you thought highly of it was what moved it to the top of my uh, watch list and I'm so glad I watched it, but I, yeah, I'd never literally never heard of it. Never seen the trailer, never nothing. Yeah. Um, and See, just that really, that so, blows me out, man. I, yeah, I, I hope, hopefully this podcast will yeah. change that. Yeah, exactly. So hopefully we'll, yeah, put it on people's radar and that one's one that you can watch right now if you want to, it's, yeah. it's streaming on Netflix. So check that out. Uh, okay. A couple more things that I watched and caught up with recently. I finally saw Spencer, the, uh, princess Diana sort of quasi biopic uh not really it's more just like a, a weekend in her life um, it, it says it's a fable at the start of the movie actually it says it yeah says yeah i thought that uh i mean i, I really like this movie i i was not like fully head over heels in love with it i did love kristen stewart's performance i thought she was i mean just fantastic in this um it, it, like the the uh the way that she's able to play um suffocation uh i just think is like super super effective in this movie and pablo lorraine who um is a director who seems to be carving out a, a particular niche with himself or with with these sort of like uh psychological dramas based on real women um i think he like shoots the hell out of this movie it's really like the the uh production design is excellent i did not i forgot to i meant to look up and maybe you know this off the top of your head chris but like where they filmed this um, because it looks like they were actually walking around in a real, uh, you know, a real palace that looked, um, you know, exactly like what I think it should have looked like at that time in the early nineties when this movie takes place. So I, I don't know what they did they, in terms of the production design, but it looked I great. Think they shot a lot of it in Germany, believe it or not, which you would not expect because it doesn't, you know. Doesn't, I, don't, I guess I don't know what Germany would look like. Everyone's drinking beer and eating presses. I don't know, <laughs> I don't know what the generic, the generic German landscape looks like. But yeah, they shot a lot of it in Germany. Yeah, um, but man, yeah, I, I, I mean, I like this movie a lot, uh, despite the fact that I didn't like. I, I don't know where it will end up on my favorites of the year or anything, but um, God, like, see it for Kristen Stewart's performance alone because uh, that is just um, 
it's fantastic. I think Brad mentioned on Twitter that it reminded him in certain parts of The Shining, and I had that same reaction too, where it's like it you know, definitely person, has like a, a horror vibe to it for real. Yeah, and especially uh, I think it's Timothy Spall's character who is like this. Um, I don't know. He's like the head footman or something. Like the you know the, this. Uh, this lackey basically who is tasked with keeping an eye on Diana as she yeah. uh, sort of breaks down psychologically over this weekend. And he's just like always there and like hovering in, in doorways and just sort of intruding on her life in a way that just feels, um, yeah, like I said, that, that suffocation just comes through so viscerally in this movie. So uh, Spencer, it's, it's very good. Uh, and then two other things that I saw, I caught up with pig, the Nicholas cage movie. Have you seen this one, Chris? I did. I, I, uh, this is one of my my favorites of the year. So tread carefully, Ben. I really love this movie. <laughs> okay. I, I thought this was great. I, I really didn't know what to expect here, but it's so um, it's so much more quiet and contemplative than I anticipated. And yeah, because the the synopsis really makes it sound like it's going to be like John Wick with a pig and Nicolas Cage, and that's not what this is at all. Yeah, it really like the 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 initial act, the inciting incident is almost exactly the same. Um, like in John Wick, the puppy is killed, but in Pig, uh, Nicholas Cage, who plays this guy who um, is like a truffle forager who lives out in the woods by himself with this pig, uh, the pig is stolen, and it, the whole movie is about him trying to get his pig back. And that yeah, it sort of conjures up images, especially with like movies like Mandy in recent memory for what Cage has done. Uh, of him, you know, just going on this like blood soaked rampage to get this pig back. And it is like the exact opposite of that. Um, man, like, I, I don't know how much I want to say about this because the the final, um, I guess, resolution to what uh, or, or I guess the, the final conflict, let's say, or, or maybe the climactic uh, confrontation um, is presented in a way that I don't think I've ever really seen before. And, and I thought it was just like completely uh, hypnotic and mesmerizing and um, super, super effective. So I'll just, I guess, leave it at that because I want to be vague about it. And I, I want people to have the experience that I had of just, um, you know, watching this movie and letting it uh, sort of wash over you. And but man, like this, this might be Nicolas Cage's best performance like ever. He is just fantastic in this. He's so, so locked in. He's, he's so good. And oh. like, this is like. This is like the antidote or the cure for everyone who's ever been like, oh, Nicolas Cage, he's all he does is overact. And like, yeah, yeah. he does. Like, he does do a lot of movies where he's, you know, unhinged. But this is like the perfect uh, representation of how good he can really be, especially if he clicks with the material. And he's so he's so subtle here. I can't I, he hasn't yeah. been this subtle in a very long time. And uh, I don't want to discourage him from making his wacky performances because I love those too. <laughs> but it, it is great to see him play such a, a low, uh, sort of low-key, quiet character for a change. Yeah. Do you know anything about Michael Sarnoski, the director? I think I'm this pretty is, sure this his, is his, first his first movie, movie yeah. which is really impressive. That wow, like yeah. <laughs> unbelievable <laughs> because it's so assured and it's so specific. Like the thing about the the movie is that it sort of takes you, uh, like behind the scenes of the the um portland food scene and like in these sort of underground uh like corner club and, there's like a shit yeah. fight club yeah which sounds again sounds like a you know a crazy nicholas cage fight scene is going to happen and it's not that at all but it, yeah. it really like the the movie um like reveals uh and and sort of takes you it pulls back the curtain in a way that um that just feels like so uh 
yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm like at a loss for words at how um, effective I thought that the storytelling was in Pig. So yeah, the movie is simply called The Word Pig, and it's really very, very good. Neon put it out earlier this year. Uh, if you have a chance to check it out, I think it's on VOD right now. It's on Hulu um, right now, actually. Oh, Hulu. There. Perfect. Okay, great. So yes, um, there. that seems like an even easier uh, barrier to entry. So hopefully people will... Uh, not let that one fall through the cracks because holy crap, it's very, very good. Yeah. Uh, okay. Speaking of things that are very, very good. Have you seen Coda, Chris? I haven't. I've heard good things about it, but I have not seen it. Okay. So Coda stands for Child of Deaf Adults. And I knew this movie played at Sundance in 2021 and that Apple TV Plus purchased it for something like $25 million, which I think was a record at the time. Uh, and I didn't really know anything else about it um, beyond that. And I think I'm, I don't really want to say much more about it either, because again, this was one of those that I, I just, oh, I, I knew that it was a crowd pleaser. I'd heard people say that, that like, you know, it's a great movie to watch with the family because it's a big crowd pleasing movie. So um, I, I don't want to say too much more about it than that. I will say that it is about a family of four where one daughter, like the the daughter in the family is the only one who can hear. And then the three other family members that she have are that she has are deaf. And it's about the the pressure that is put on her uh, in that very sort of unique situation of like, how much does she owe to her family? And how much does she owe to herself to carve out her own identity and and go off and, and do her own things and find her own uh, passions and and all that. I thought this was just fantastic. Like I, I think it's going to be certainly one of my favorite movies of the year, if not like, you know, top five. Um, but man, I, I just, it's, it's one of those movies that is um, blatantly manipulative, but I think it's so well executed uh, that I just, I was in tears uh, at the very end of the movie because it is so, so uh, effective in terms of, um, just being able to to sort of uh, crank the dial up on uh, on you know the tearjerker aspect of it, I just thought uh, everything about it, from the performances to the writing to the cinematography, was just like it all worked in concert with each other to uh, to create this really like small little slice of perfection. So uh, the movie is called Coda. It is on Apple TV Plus right now, and I really hope that you check it out because this is another one where like. I heard a lot about this movie around the time of Sundance, which was in January, almost a year ago. And I haven't really heard much about it since then because Apple TV plus is not exactly, they haven't figured it out yet in terms of like marketing and, and all of that kind of stuff. I think this is just one of those movies that, you know, got slapped into the library and not a ton of people have even heard about it. But um, if you happen to have Apple TV plus, it is like, if you, if you've, you know, subscribe to watch Ted Lasso or whatever. Uh, this is definitely worth your time. So please check out Coda. It is one of those that I, again, really hope does not fall through the cracks, but uh, yeah, hopefully the, this podcast episode, Chris, well, there, there are several recommendations we made of smaller things that I think um, are not necessarily being uh, as championed as they, they, as some of the other things that you see on the internet every day. So um, hopefully people get a chance to uh, take our, our recommendations to heart here. So I think that's going to wrap it up, uh, wrap it up for us. Unless you have any closing thoughts on anything that we didn't touch on, Chris? Uh, no, I don't think so. Uh, let's take our word for it. People, well, everything we just said, listen to it and follow it. <laughs> yes, indeed. All right. Uh, well, yeah, that's going to bring us to the end of today's episode of the show. You can find more about the movies that we mentioned on today's show at slash and linked inside the show notes. 
uh, of this episode. Slash Film Daily is published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe basically wherever you get your podcasts. You can send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, mailbag topics, and anything else to us at peter at slashfilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends, spread the word. Thank you all for listening, and we will talk to you tomorrow.